This is Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the free weekly financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Macro Voices is all about the brightest minds in the world of finance and macroeconomics telling it like it is, bullish or bearish, no holds barred. Now, here are your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. Macro Voices episode 189 was recorded on October 17th, 2019. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode of Macro Voices is brought to you by our friends at toptradersunplugged.com, which happens to be my own favorite podcast when it comes to quant and rules-based investing. Macro Mavens founder Stephanie Pomboy joins me as this week's feature interview guest. Stephanie put together a terrific chart deck to accompany this interview, and we'll discuss everything from retail sales data to the disparity between corporate earnings and S&P 500 earnings. Stephanie will explain why the two really are not the same thing, even though almost everyone assumes that they are. And be sure to stay tuned for our post-game segment after the feature interview when Sprott Global's Rick Rule will be joining us. I'm going to ask Rick to talk to us about how sophisticated investors, let's say a family office with $100 million of assets under management, should pursue not only investing in precious metals, but also both public and private equities in the sector. So we're going to cover some advanced material relative to gold and silver investing in our postgame segment. And of course, Patrick will also have one of his famous chart books with an update and extended equity market coverage. And I'm Patrick Serezna. Now, Eric, that S&P 500 has recovered much of the little market correction we had in the start of October. What's your thinking on the S&P now that we're around this 3000 level? Well, you know, it feels to me like every time there's more bad news, the market trades up on it. And I think that what's driving it is, again, that this Fed put the expectation that uh, if there is more economic weakness, and I think the economic data looks pretty darn awful, the result is going to be that there will be accommodation from the Fed, and everybody's expecting quantitative easing to drive markets higher. Now, someday this narrative is going to break down, and quantitative easing won't drive markets it's higher. There's going to be one of those wild E. Coyote monuments where the market says, uh-oh, we thought the Fed had our back, and it turns out they didn't. And then things are going to get really, really ugly. But I've been wrong quite a few times thinking that moment was already upon us. Uh, it seems like it's not here yet. And what it looks to me like is this market is trying to break out higher, as crazy as that seems to me. All right. Well, let's move on to the dollar index because uh, we had a bit of a spill here on the short term. What's uh, your thinking here on the dollar? Well, finally, we have something to talk about, Patrick. You know, so many times the dollar bears were just whining, saying, oh, the, you know, the end is nigh, the, the dollar is going to crash, when in reality, the technical chart pattern looked very bullish. Well, now we've actually seen a breakdown below that channel resistance line. So yeah, there's something to talk about here. But, you know, as much as there has been a very significant pullback, this came on news of the Fed, although they tried to say it's not QE, but it really is QE. The Fed has announced another asset purchase program, which clearly has to be dollar bearish. So I look at this and I say, okay, we've pulled back, what, 
from 99.50 to what, 97.50 or a little bit below that? We haven't even gotten down to the 97 round number yet. And maybe we're headed there. I don't know. But Patrick, given the news flow, I think a pullback of this magnitude is entirely consistent with what I would expect. Now, certainly this could be the beginning of the end. I think it's more likely that we're going to bottom out here somewhere around where we are, maybe a little bit lower. If we go much lower, I'll start to get concerned. But given the news flow, it's no surprise that the dollar's taken a beating here. Well, let's move on to crude oil because it looks like it might be a short-term low. What's your thinking here? Well, Patrick, this crude oil market has been acting funny uh, ever since Tuesday morning, really. And just to, to go over the the way this market has played out, at least in my perception, Sunday night when futures opened, we saw the selling begin in earnest. And there's no surprise there. A lot of times we'll see a Friday rally. Nobody wants to be short into the weekend. Once the weekend is over and nothing big happened on the weekend, the market starts selling off. And that's exactly what happened Sunday night into Monday. We got back down between the short-term moving averages on Sunday night, stayed between them on Monday, looked like the market wanted to break lower but couldn't quite do it. We managed to hold on to that eight-day moving average, which was the bottom of the three short-term moving averages on Monday afternoon. But then Tuesday morning, as the European session opened about 4 a.m., there was a really, really hard break to the downside, taking out all of those short-term moving averages. That really looked like the sell signal, like the market was ready to move lower. But then a funny thing happened Tuesday morning around 6 a.m., all of a sudden, the market did a U-turn. Somebody started buying. It was almost like somebody in North America woke up and said, wait a minute, uh, I, I know something other people don't. I want to buy this dip. I want to buy any dip. And sure enough, we saw a complete reversal. No news that I'm aware of to explain that reversal. And after breaking down below all three of those short-term moving averages, by noontime, we were above them all again. There was a really sharp rally. But then going into the close on Tuesday, the market couldn't hold it, and it sold off very aggressively, closing below all three of those short-term moving averages, even though it had traded above them during the day. That would normally be a pretty bearish signal. It seemed like, okay, now finally that, that closing print below all three of those short-term moving averages is in, we're moving lower. What happens the next day? Well, we move higher, and again, we get up to the top of that, the five-day moving average, which was the top of that trading range, start to trade back down. Then on Wednesday afternoon, we get API announcing, and that's the private inventory service. Inventory was delayed by a day this week because of the Columbus Day holiday. API announces a 10 million barrel build on inventory. That's an incredibly bearish sign. Crude oil trades off, but not that far off. And by morning of Thursday, we're back up to where we started, right around the 13-day moving average. What the heck is going on here? How come we're ignoring this, this sign? We get to the EIA data. EIA almost confirms the API number. API said 10 million barrel build on inventory. EIA came in with an official print of 9.3 million barrels build on inventory. Cushing, Oklahoma accounting for 1.3 million barrels of that build. Gasoline and distillates did have drawdowns this week. 2.6 million on gasoline, 3.8 million on distillates. But still, net-net, it's a build on inventory. 
that causes the market to trade down sharply for all of about 60 seconds. And then it starts moving higher again. By the end of the day on Thursday, we've broken through all of those short-term moving averages, and we're breaking out to the upside on the back of what should have been incredibly bearish news. Now, how do you explain that? Well, one distinct possibility is today was also options expiration day, and there was a lot of open interest at the 54 strike, which is just about where the market closed. Okay, that seems to make sense, but if this was about artificial buying to get to that pinning effect of options expiry, you'd expect to get up even in the face of what should have been a bearish signal on inventory. You'd get up to that $54 round, you'd stay there for 30 seconds, and you'd make an abrupt U-turn and start selling off. Even after those options expired at 2.30 this afternoon, Patrick, as we're speaking now, we're looking at 54 spot 08, and the market is drifting higher feels to me as if somebody knows that something's coming that's awfully bullish. Now, the commentators that I've seen today have said, well, it's because of growing optimism around Brexit and China trade talks. Dude, we just had a 10 million, well, 9.3 million barrel, according to the EIA official data, build in crude oil inventories. That's an incredibly bearish print. And the market's going straight up. There's more to this than just Brexit in China, as far as I'm concerned. I can't tell what, but one thing I do know is I don't want to be short into this weekend. All right, Eric, I wanted to pick your brain on gold. We've been more or less pinned around this 1500 level. What's in store for gold next? Gold never ceases to amaze me with its strength and resilience here. There is a head and shoulders pattern, an incomplete head and shoulders pattern on the daily chart, and gold has rejected that neckline a couple of times now. So it looks like that head and shoulders, which was potentially something the bears were hanging on to saying, oh, you just wait till we break that neckline. That's where the selling is really going to accelerate. We'll be looking at 1350 before you know it. Well, we only got, what, one or two daily prints below that neckline, and then it quickly reversed and has stayed above it ever since for the last oh, week and a half or so. So it seems like gold is a lot more resilient than I expected. Now, from a commitment of traders standpoint, we still have record speculative long interest. That is normally a setup for a correction to the downside. Too many people on one side of the boat all at the same time. But so far, we're not seeing that correction. And, uh, you know, I'm watching this very carefully. I want to buy the dip here. I thought we were going to get a much bigger dip. I was expecting sub-1,400 prices. Uh, I'm being forced to reevaluate that. I'm not rushing to back up the leverage truck yet, but I may start scaling into a gold position here. Uh, I've already got a core position, of course, but a speculative gold position. If we don't see some action pretty soon here, maybe we're just going to consolidate sideways before moving higher. I, I thought there were lower numbers to come. We'll see what happens. Sure. Well, let's move on to the uh, 10-year treasury, and we're more or less around the 175 on the yield. What's your thinking here? It feels like we found kind of a support level here right around where we are, just a little bit lower than this on price or a little higher in yield. We tried to see a break this morning that was not sustained, so it looks like almost the ingredients of a reversal day today. Uh, we'll see what happens in the next few days, but I still think we're headed lower in yield. Uh, I, I think all the fundamentals are there. What would take us higher, I suppose, the argument maybe for higher is uh, China's about to come to a deal, everything's going to 
There's going to be a Brexit deal. There's going to be a China deal. Everything's going to be fixed. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. The stock market's going to move higher. Bond yields are going to move higher. Everything's going to be great. Uh, I think at the end of the day, the economic news still looks pretty bad. Maybe the China deal will come together. Uh, I don't know how long that's going to sustain higher yields. Okay, well, thanks for the update. Now, this week's featured interview guest is Stephanie Pomboy, founder of Macro Mavens. Why did we invite Stephanie as a guest this week? You know, Stephanie has an amazing history. She got her first job in finance at the age of, I think, 21 or 22. And somehow she just lucked into a job where she's hanging out with Stan Druckenmiller and George Soros at the age of 22 and just made connections with people in finance that most people, you know, spend their whole career dreaming of meeting. And she's a 22-year-old kid hanging out with these guys. Uh, She's really had a very successful practice as a boutique institutional advisor. She's not very well known in the retail space, but uh, I think she's got a a terrific market outlook and she really has a a knack for charts. I, I love the charts that she puts together. So I'm really looking forward to this one, Patrick. And this episode of Macro Voices was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com. I did a full-length interview with Niels Kastrup-Larsen, the host of this excellent podcast, back on September 7th, 2019, on the subject of trend following. The download link is in your Research Roundup email. We discussed a number of key issues about the value of having a rules-based investment strategy in a portfolio. In our conversation, Niels shared some insights that may surprise you, especially when it comes to how trend-following strategies don't really operate the way some market commentators suggest that they do. For more information, including a free book about trend-following and the accredited investor slide deck from my interview with Niels Kastrup-Larsen, go to toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro slides. Check them out. You'll be glad you did. Eric's interview with Stephanie Pomboy is coming up as Macro Voices continues right here at MacroVoices.com. And now with this week's special guest, here's hedge fund manager Eric Townsend. Joining me now is Stephanie Pomboy, founder of Macro Mavens, and very possibly the hardest to get interview guest that we've dealt with to date. Uh, I know when uh, Grant Williams interviewed you the first time, you made a joke about playing hard to get. I thought you were kidding until we've been through this. So thank you for finally coming and uh, and joining us for an interview, Stephanie. Oh, it's my pleasure. Actually, I um sort of fashion myself the J.D. Salinger of macroeconomics. So (laughs) don't take it personally. I just uh, prefer to remain hiding under my desk most of the time. But thank you for having me. Well, we pride ourselves in digging out the people that are actually worth listening to, and I certainly respect you in that category. So let's talk about the big macro picture. I think the the big question in everybody's mind is, uh, you know, a lot of us have been saying that we're very late in the economic cycle and it's time for the markets to roll over. Uh, Markets aren't rolling over. So what's going on here? How do you see this picture? Yeah, it's fascinating and, and frustrating at the same time. I guess, you know, I increasingly am being brought back to 2016. It seems like we've seen a lot of economic data that is now posting its weakest readings since 2016, you know, in the early part of the year. And I got back to thinking about what was happening then and what the similarities are and importantly, what the differences are. And it's kind of an interesting road to go down, as you undoubtedly recall, in early part of 2016, 
it was just on the heels of the very first Fed rate hike. You know, they had dragged their feet following the taper tantrum in 2013 and waited and waited and decided in December of 2015 to start raising rates. And the reaction in the markets was swift and painful. I think the markets clearly perceived the Fed as having misstepped and the economic data at the time clearly indicated that uh, you know the economy was slowing sharply, which sort of begs the question of why they decided that was the moment to start to raise rates. And obviously, all of this reversed on a dime with the election in November of that year as you know, people started to anticipate sort of a pro-business agenda and uh, massive tax cuts. So, you know, that whole experience of 2016, when we looked like we were heading into recession and the Fed had made a policy mistake, has now been sort of erased from the collective memory by this, you know, shift in uh, in policy from D.C. So you flash forward to today and the economy again looks like it's slumping over into recession and as you said, you know, the market seemed to be dismissing that as sort of not where we're ultimately going to go. And the interesting thing to me is that the thing that might rescue us this time is sort of hard to identify. You know, it doesn't look like we'll see any kind of pro-growth fiscal stimulus. You know, we're busy trying to figure out if we're going to get anything positive out of Washington. And then on the monetary front, and obviously we could spend a lot of time talking about this, not clear that uh, doing more is necessarily going to help the situation. So that's sort of my overarching focus right now. And I'm happy to go through and look at the specifics on the ground. But that's sort of where I am from 10,000 feet up right now. As we come in a, a little closer, why don't we talk about the quantitative, well, it's not quantitative easing, the, the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet quantitatively for the purpose of providing easing, which is not quantitative easing, that thing that happened last week. What do you think's going on there? Because a lot of people thought, okay, markets are going to start to crash. The Fed's going to bail them out with QE. It feels almost like the market is being preemptively bailed out before it even takes a turn south by QE. Or is this the Fed trying to stave off that recession that they see coming, even though they say they don't? I've given up trying to figure out what the Fed is thinking because it's just really hard to tell. I guess, you know, one might conclude that they haven't been thinking I would argue, and actually did argue from the moment they started to unwind the balance sheet, that they really were underestimating the impact that that would have both in the marketplace and on the economy more broadly. And it is kind of amazing to me that they, you know, they first described it as watching paint dry. You know, this would happen behind the scenes and it really would be a non-event that didn't have any discernible impact which would beg the question, if unwinding the balance sheet was going to be a non-event, why did you expand it in the first place? So, you know, it just seemed to me that they had done all this analysis about the impact, the stimulative impact that expanding the balance sheet had had, and then described this as, you know, being on autopilot and sort of not important, which just didn't make any sense on its face. And then, you know, obviously, as they got deeper and deeper into this process, you saw more and more signs, you know, the economic momentum was slowing. And, you know, the financial system, I think they, they believed that there was so much in the way of excess reserves that they had a long runway before it would ever get to a point where, you know, it was an issue. And they clearly 
really miscalculated on that front. And to me, it kind of comes back to the broader question about the Fed's credibility. You know, we hang on every word, every utterance that they make as if they've got some great gift of insight as to where the economy is going and a real handle on the markets and that, you know, no matter what happens, economic or financial, these guys will, you know, navigate around these issues and steer us past any rocky shoals and everything will be fine. All evidence to the contrary And I'm just surprised as one who's been sort of, let's say, cynical about the Fed's grasp on what's going on, that the markets still believe that they have some kind of handle on what's going on. So I think, to me, the biggest takeaway about this whole repo market exercise is that it illustrates how clueless the Fed is about really the impact that its policies have had and obviously the effect that unwinding those policies, I mean, this unprecedented stimulus that we saw was completely uncharted territory. And they had this kind of, you know, maybe hubristic notion that, oh, we can handle this no problem. I've talked to several guests who've told me, look, Jay Powell had it pretty much right. It's a end of quarter technicalities in the repo market. It's no big deal. And I've talked to others who've said, look, this right here, right now, this is your TED spread blowing out in the summer of 2008 moment. This is your warning signal that the shit's about to hit the fan. Uh, those are two extremes. Where do you fall in that spectrum in, in terms of the significance of this liquidity shock that we seem to be experiencing? Well, I'd say I definitely fall more in the latter camp. I mean, again, I think it comes back to the the fact that, you know, the New York Fed is really on the front lines of this, and no one really should have a better grasp on the potential liquidity issues in that market than the New York Fed. And they clearly, you know, when the Fed funds, when the overnight rate jumps up to 10%, they clearly miscalculated something. So yes, there are a lot of, it was sort of a perfect storm of events as we look back on it now, but the fact that they had not allowed any margin for error for these things, I mean, it wasn't news that the treasury is going to be borrowing a lot. And, you know, these are all things that you would think they would have anticipated might happen or modeled for since they model for everything. And yet, it wasn't just sort of like a minor mistake. It was a fairly uh, massive miscalculation. So, you know, again, I, I do, it doesn't, let's say it doesn't imbue my confidence that they really have a handle on, on what's going on. Stephanie, you also put together a terrific chart book for our listeners. Listeners, you'll find the download link in your research roundup email. If you're not yet registered, just go to our homepage at macrovoices.com. Look for the red button that says looking for the downloads next to Stephanie's picture on our homepage. Steph, let's talk about this chart book. What caught my interest right on, on page three it looks like you're showing here at one point, you've got a three question marks. It looks like people started actually spending money they already had rather than buying stuff on credit, but it only lasted for six months. What's going on bigger picture? Why, why did you start with the discretionary spending and revolving credit and retail sales? What's the bigger picture of where you're coming from? But particularly, what's going on with uh, that credit anomaly there? 
Yeah, I am a simpleton when it comes to analyzing the U.S. economy. I always start with the U.S. consumer because I figure if I can get that right, I pretty well have got the story, you know, at 70% of the economy. That's really the, the thing you want to get right. And I just continue to be confounded by this strong consumer narrative because if you just bother to look at any of the details in the numbers, you find out that, you know, the consumer numbers really aren't strong at all. And just to sort of step back and and paint the backdrop here, before you even look at these charts, you have to bear in mind that we have sort of the ultimate environment for the consumer right now. We've got record high net worth. We have record low debt service. Mortgage rates, you know, back at what, three, six. We have the unemployment rate, the lowest in 50 years. The Fed can't seem to conjure 2% inflation. So when you think about, you know, back in the 70s, Arthur Oaken created the misery index, which was just a simple addition of the unemployment rate and inflation to kind of capture misery for the consumer. Right now, that's at record lows. So I describe it not as the misery index, it's the mirth index right now. I mean, the consumer basically has everything going for him today. And then you look at that first chart on page two of discretionary spending. So basically everything he has a choice to spend money on. And, you know, going back to 2016 and that analogy, you see, we basically round tripped. You know, we had this little blip up on the heels of the election, and now we're right back to where we were before. And the pattern is one of sort of slow churn sideways to downward in terms of nominal total discretionary spending. And then if you get to the next page, and the reason I put that chart overlaying revolving credit, essentially credit card use versus retail sales, which again is just a way to capture the discretionary portion of consumer spending, what you see is that they're slowing their discretionary purchases at the same time they're accelerating their credit card borrowing. This in the past has been a harbinger of recession. You know, if you've got to put more on your credit card at the same time you're slowing your your spending, it's generally not a positive indication. So these two charts really make me concerned about this confidence in the strong consumer. And that really comes back to this whole, you know, mistake that the Fed made late last year in raising rates again, and their whole underestimation about the impact their balance sheet unwind would have. But it also feeds into the stock market looking through all of that, because the strong consumer narrative directly imbues this corporate profit story. And as you're well aware, we're potentially going to have our third quarter of negative profit growth. So we're clearly in profits recession. And yet the market has looked through that on the idea, I believe, that the recession is strictly a function of this whole trade war weighing on activity and slower growth abroad, that it's not a reflection of the U.S. economy. And I come back to those consumer charts and I say, hmm, maybe it is more of a reflection about things that are going on here and not just a trade-related issue, in which case, you know, now we're going to see potentially weaker earnings numbers in the, in the quarters to come. 
Steph, as I look at the recession areas on the left, it's easy to see what's going on when you have credit card borrowing moving above retail sales. In other words, uh, people are spending money that they don't have. It, it looks like where you've got the question marks on the right side of the slide, that retail sales continued to increase even as credit card borrowing was decreasing, almost seeming like people were saving up again before they bought stuff. What's going on here? What does this mean? Oh, well, in this chart, essentially what I'm trying to highlight is that starting really at the beginning of this year, you saw credit card borrowing start to pick up at the same time retail sales growth started to slow. So that trend which is why I put the question marks there, has in the past been associated with recessions. And the question is, is that what it's signaling again this time? You know, whenever people, as you said, are having to rely on their credit cards more to fund their purchases, much less discretionary spending, that has generally been an indication of recession. So, you know, the jury is out, but I think this is an important one to watch And again, it kind of flies in the face of this whole strong consumer narrative. And when you think about it in the context of the things I just mentioned about, you know, record high net worth and low unemployment rate, et cetera, the consumer really shouldn't have to be ramping up his use of credit card borrowing to fund his uh, marginal spending. So the recession signal would be that red line crossing the blue line, which have not crossed yet, but boy, they sure look like they're set up to cross awfully soon. Stephanie, let's move on to page four, where you're graphing inventory to sales ratios. What's going on with this chart? Well, again, this one brings us back to 2016. And I think this one is interesting as relates to this whole idea that, you know, the profits recession is strictly a function of weakness abroad, et cetera, and the trade issue. And when you look at this, you might say, well, this is the trade issue. You know, companies are just shrewdly stockpiling stuff ahead of what they thought would be, you know, further tariff increases down the road. So that's what's behind this increase in the in the inventory to sales ratios in both the wholesale and retail level. But when you drill down and you actually look at the inventory component versus the sales component, what you see is that the problem here is that sales are slowing much faster and that, you know, the inventory accumulation is pretty solid. It's not eye-popping in any way. What's eye-popping is the deceleration in sales. So again, it gets back to this idea that there is a demand story here. It's not just a function of, you know, the trade war boosting supply of inventories It's that companies are finding that, yes, they ordered early as much inventory as they could, but they still overestimated because the sales just continue to disappoint. And then on the next page, I think this is an amazing chart because in the past, when you've seen, you know, time was when inventories were the thing that led you into recession. This is before just-in-time inventory management when, you know, companies would miscalculate and that would be the thing when they overstockpiled and then they'd have to liquidate and that would send us into recession. And so you can see on this chart, I identified that actually inventory peaks were normally the thing that caused the Fed to shift its policy and shift to cutting rates. And so I've highlighted there in all those episodes that the peak inventory was associated with the first rate cut by the Fed. At this time, 
in late 2015, the Fed decided that was the time to raise rates in the face of the largest inventory overhang we had ever seen in history. So it's, again, an indication that they completely miscalculated back then. And obviously, as you can see, you know, we're still facing a pretty substantial inventory overhang, which really the only reason I bore everyone, uh, including myself, talking about inventories is that this really is going to be critical in terms of the outlook for profits. I keep coming back to profits because maybe I'm I'm uh, incorrect about this, but I feel like that's the thing that is driving the stock market higher in the face of all the weaker economic data that we've seen, all these indications that, you know, PMIs are the weakest since 2016 and you know, these inventory numbers are the steepest we've seen since 2016. And they just brush it off with, I believe, this confidence that, you know, the profit hit is just this trade story. And then as we get into 2020, we're going to go back to double digits. You know, the S&P earnings forecast for the analyst estimates for S&P earnings next year are 10%. So clearly, the prospect of this inventory liquidation cycle weighing on earnings and the idea that it's larger than just trade, that the consumer is really weak, isn't yet factored into the markets whatsoever. Let's move on to page six, then. I think this is a very important chart, because to the uninitiated, corporate profits and S&P 500 earnings are the same thing. It sounds like the same thing. You're showing here they're not at all the same thing. Explain this chart. Yeah, this has been really fascinating. And as you can see on this chart, it's very unusual to see a divergence like this between corporate profits, which is the total profits for the U.S. economy that is reported by the BEA, who put together the GDP report. So every quarter that they calculate total GDP, they also come up with a calculation as to what total corporate profits were. And as you can see, their estimate of corporate profits has been substantially weaker than the S&P earnings numbers. And in the past, when you've had disagreements like this between these two measures, which I show on page seven, generally, it's been the BEA, the government uh, broader statistics that have won the argument at the end of the day. And there are a variety of reasons for that. And three in particular, which I would argue are even more compelling today. One is that obviously because they capture the entire economy rather than just the top 500 companies, it's a better grasp on what's happening you know, more broadly. It's not idiosyncratic. It's not going to be a function of just Google pushing the numbers up. The second thing is they tend to hew more closely to gap accounting. So you know, these, let's say, accounting shenanigans aren't as prevalent in the in the broader corporate profit data. But the most important reason, and I think the one that's really driving this yawning gap today, is share buybacks. The government measures its profits in total dollars. The S&P obviously measures profits on a per share basis. So it is flattered by the reduction in share counts. So as you can see here, you know, according to the government, profits actually peaked at the end of 2014 and are down 4% in the time since, while the S&P shows them up 30%, largely because of the impact that share buybacks have had in flattering the numbers. 
So this idea, I mean, this really gets to valuations in the market. If people believe these S&P earnings numbers are correct, then they can justify valuations on stocks. If it turns out, as in the past, as you see on page seven, that the BEA numbers are actually the more accurate numbers, then we're going to have a come to Jesus moment in the markets as that reality comes into focus. Do we really have to have a come to Jesus moment or does Jesus come to the market in the form of accommodative monetary policy saving the day again? And, and, you know, I I could go on for hours arguing why I don't think that accommodative monetary policy should boost markets. But you know what? History has been pretty clear for the last 10 years. Yeah, no, I'm with you. And, and, And it gets back to my frustration. Actually, it's sort of, for me, an existential question. Why do I do what I do? in terms of trying to figure out what's happening in the economy if the fundamentals don't matter and the Fed's going to rush in and just encourage people to take risk all the time. So who cares about the fundamentals? So, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a question I wrestle with a lot. Why will it be different this time than it has, you know, every time it looked like we were slowing and, you know, on the cusp of some market meltdown in the past? And I think, I mean, maybe I'm guilty of putting too much emphasis on it. But I think that what we've seen in terms of the monetary policy developments globally in the last couple of weeks has been really important and represents, I would say, almost a tectonic shift in the way people are going to perceive or even central banks perceive this, let's call it repressive interest rate regime and, and, and the benefits of QE. And the first indication of that for me was the Bank of Japan, which basically has finally figured out that, you know, negative interest rates and inverted yield curves aren't exactly great for banks and that, you know, having a healthy financial sector is fairly critical to having a healthy economy. And so they have basically said, you know, we're going to try to scale back our purchases of long dated paper and focus more on purchasing at the front end in a way to try to steepen the yield curve. So to my mind, you know, this was kind of a, a revolutionary epiphany on the part of the Bank of Japan. It took 30 years, but, you know, they finally have started to figure out that maybe, you know, there is a point at which you can push rates too low. And so I, I think that was a real important event. And then, of course, you've had a lot of comments by people formerly employed and and around the ECB who've made a lot of similar remarks of recent. So I think there's there's starting to be a little inkling that maybe we've passed the point where these policies have a benefit. And I can go through in more detail the evidence of, I like to call it sort of the, the George Costanza effect, where Every intention of the policy has actually had the opposite effect, where, you know, the idea was obviously to conjure inflation. And in fact, most of these policies have had very disinflationary consequences and have, I would argue, depressed growth rather than stimulated it. 
Well, I'd be particularly interested to get more perspective from you on how the end game plays out, because what I see is a common theme in all of the, the smartest people that I talk to is they all tell the same story, really, which they express it in different ways. But what they say is, look, in the end, economic fundamentals always have to win out. But central banks have more power than anybody else to delay the inevitable. And so that's that's why we've been, you know, 10 years of this. But in the end, economic fundamentals have to be the deciding factor. Well, my question is, okay, what defines the end game? What causes the end to come? What, what, what causes the expiry, if you will, of the Fed put? Is there reason to think that this regime of monetary, of accommodative monetary policy, enabling stock buybacks, allowing markets to just grind higher, despite you and all the other smart people saying, guys, the economy is not as good as everybody thinks. Um, you know, the economy is not as good as everybody thinks, but it hasn't stopped markets from grinding higher. What's going to be the catalyst or the, the thing that changes that, that brings about that end game? Well, I keep coming back to this corporate profit story. It's why I've spent so much time kind of really drilling into these numbers, because I think that, you know, obviously you need to have that story to support the valuations, to justify the valuations. And if you get to a point where people start to say, hey, wait, you know, maybe we're not going to have 10% earnings growth next year. Maybe the number is actually going to be zero. I have a hard time believing that's not going to have a real impact on the stock market. Actually, on page nine, this is exactly kind of what we had at the end of last year. For all of 2018, the estimate for this year's 2019 earnings was 12%. And basically, when we went through almost the entire year of 2018, stuck at this 12% estimate. And then in the fourth quarter, the wheels started to come off and people realized, hey, maybe we're not going to get 12% earnings growth next year. And I think there's a really good chance that we get a repeat of that this year. And then going to have that at a time when it's not clear again, that this stimulus, this Fed rushing in that, you know, Pavlovian response to come rushing in with the fire hoses is necessarily going to solve the problem. I mean, it may, but I really think that we're now at the point where we're already three quarters into recession for profits. And if you throw out there to the markets, hey, next year is going to be pretty bad too. And we have no prospect of pro-business fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington, quite the contrary. We've got, you know, real dysfunction and impeachment talks, et cetera, that will, you know, bog down anything there for a while. You know, it comes back to the Fed. And then you start looking at what's the impact, what's going to be the benefit of cutting rates from here and doing more QE. And you look at the financials and, you know, clearly they're already struggling with, the slope of the yield curve and, and the level of interest rates right now, you are seeing consumer delinquencies pick up in the non-mortgage space. You've been seeing that for a while. So there is you know, a deterioration in credit quality. At the same time, banks are already struggling with that interest margins. So I think all that's swirling around. And if you start to see this profit story ricochet through the credit markets, which it's hard to believe, you know, that corporate credit spreads wouldn't start to expand as the profit outlook deteriorates, then you really set in motion 
the negative feedback loop pretty quickly where, you know, as credit spreads increase, the funding for share buybacks disappears because they've all been funded with cheap debt. And that then takes another peg out from under the stock market and also hits earnings because, again, they have all been flattered by these share buybacks. So you create this kind of vicious circle where, you know, the wider credit spreads get, the lower the buybacks, the worse the earnings, and then that feeds back to credit spreads, which blow out farther still. And, you know, so I could see that situation setting up pretty quickly. And, you know, I, I like you, puzzle as to what's going to be the catalyst. And, and for me, I keep coming back to the profit story as the catalyst, because I think people are still in fantasy land about what earnings are going to be next year. So are you expecting a fourth quarter 19 risk-off event on the scale that we saw last year, or is the more accommodative Fed policy going to put a damper on the downside risk? I think there's a really good chance that we see a repeat of the fourth quarter meltdown this year. I think that, you know, the chart on page nine, I expect we'll just repeat the pattern and those earnings estimates will get slashed and that will create some real turmoil in the markets, at which point, you know, people will then start to scratch their heads like, does the Fed really have a handle on what's going on here? And does cutting rates more and expanding the balance sheet more, whether it's non-QE, QE or real QE, QE, does that really set us up any better? So, you know, I think that's, for me, that could be the catalyst. The other side of it that's kind of silently going on in the background, and to be honest, you know, I'm just starting to think about this and try to figure out what the impact is. But on page 13, you know, the, the sort of doomsday scenario is that the, the whole repricing of risk happens and it reveals what the Fed and uh, central banks globally have done through their years of repressive interest rate regimes, which is silently to bankrupt all of the pensions globally. I mean, essentially, these unfunded pension liabilities have mushroomed like we've never seen before, and they're completely untenable. You know, for the U.S. economy, we're looking at over $6 trillion in unfunded liabilities now with stocks basically near all-time record highs. So you've had this massive rally in risk assets, and yet the funding deficit has actually expanded in that time. And one thing that I'm starting to think about a little bit is that these guys, in their effort to make 8% returns in a you know 1% risk-free world, obviously, they went to every corner of the credit market and bought levered loans and all the most toxic stuff they could get their hands on to get that yield. They also were really big in all of these unicorn companies that are now starting to be revealed to be not so fabulous as, you know, the the valuations on these companies were completely fantastical. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out from the pension standpoint. Do we see a lot of these pensions, state and local governments having to put more money into their pensions because they have to write down a lot of the, the positions they had in those companies? It's just something I'm starting to think about. But I think that's going to be fascinating to watch as this cycle plays out, because obviously between Uber and WeWork and Peloton, you've had a lot of these companies where the valuations that were placed on them were revealed to be, let's say, a tad excessive. 
Stephanie, you make such a terrific point about unfunded liabilities. Something that I have long predicted is that there's going to be a major political agenda around some kind of helicopter money to provide. And of course, the view of the politicians who favor that, they would describe it as a solution to this problem of unfunded liabilities. They don't see it as exacerbating that problem. How do you think this might play out? And would you agree, first of all, that the upcoming election year might be when this starts to become a major issue? And if the some of the politicians were to maybe misinterpret MMT a little bit in the interest of interpreting it to mean it's okay to just print money like crazy and spend it on, on social programs without taxing anybody, what would the potential consequences of that be and how might that play out? Well, I mean, this is this is the terrifying scenario that I try not to think about too close to bedtime because <laughs> it's just going you know, to keep you up all night. But it's really hard to envision us going down the road, at least as I've laid it out and as I see it taking shape, without getting to this MMT moment. You know, I guess MMT obviously is a terrifying prospect for anyone who values hard money. So whether it's MMT or QE, you know, it's all variations on that that same theme. And I guess the best I could hope for is that if they were to pursue some form of MMT, which as you say seems almost inevitable that it will at least be part of the discussion, that they would explicitly tie the program to funding the pensions. I mean if they were to let's say allow state and local governments to issue bonds to fund their pensions and expressly bought those bonds that were issued to fund the pensions, then at least we're not, you know, having some social agenda that's being pushed through this MMT, you know, money growing on trees. So it becomes less of a a debate about where you stand on different issues, because I think one thing that's clear is that if, pardon my language, the shit really hits the fan and these pension liabilities double or triple, which seems pretty easy to happen based on what we saw happening to them during the global financial crisis, you know, there's clearly going to be a hue and cry to bail out these pensions. You can't bail out Wall Street in 2008, 2009, and then leave all these workers who by no fault of their own had their pensions invested in sub-Saharan real estate or whatever, you know, suddenly be uh, disenfranchised and have no no money for retirement. So I think that would definitely is going to be a discussion. And like I said, the best I can hope for is that they do something where they, they limit it to something that's funding the, the pensions directly. I don't think that's the agenda that most of the politicians that are thinking about this have in their minds, but I'll I'll keep my fingers crossed that they're listening. I want to come back, though, to the corporate side for a minute because uh, we skipped over page 10, which really caught my interest when I looked at at the slide deck. Uh, I think I hold the record for the guy who's been too early 
more times than anybody else to thinking it was time to short the junk bond market. And uh, I've lost money every time because, as you know, the carry cost of that trade is very high. You've got to get the timing pretty close to right. And I I keep thinking this is so crazy it can't continue. And then it just accelerates. But it, it looks like you're starting to show some divergence here on page 10. Is it finally time to short the junk bond market? Gosh, I mean, when I look at those charts, it takes every ounce of self-restraint for me not to run out and, uh, you know, just short junk myself. But yeah, I mean, it's unless you believe, which I guess people do, that this slump in the ISMs, both on the manufacturing side and the services side, is temporary and it's immediately going to bounce right back, unless you believe that. I would say it seems pretty clear that these risk assets are really hanging out over their skis and there's going to be some repricing there. And again, you know, when I couple that with my outlook for on page nine, you know, the the, uh, revision to next year's earnings estimates, I just see this setting up as this is where we're really going to see some big moves in the fourth quarter, I think. But, you know, like you, (laughs) I've thought that it was time before and been really frustrated and chastened. But, you know, it's really hard. It's not just the ISMs, too. I mean, if it were just these two charts, maybe you uh, could dismiss it, but it's not. I mean, we've seen so many indicators, again, coming back to the inventory to sales ratios and, and discretionary spending, that this is a much broader story and it's not one that can be readily dismissed as a function of, you know, the trade war and global slowdown. This is really something that has roots closer to home. Stephanie, I want to make sure we touch on gold in this interview. You've got a chart on page 14, but why don't we broaden out to the bigger picture? Uh, it feels to me like, okay, finally, it's time for, uh, you know, the argument's been there. Grant Williams has been making this argument for years and years, but the strength in the dollar and other factors have stopped gold from really making an advance. It seems like the gold bull market that so many of us have anticipated is finally upon us. Would you agree? Do you think that we're overdone here? Should we still expect a a correction? And where do you see gold in the next several years? Well, I'm about as gun shy about that as I am on on the credit spread side, because I've said it so many times before. But I am impressed with gold's performance in the face of what has been, you know, real dollar strength here. So I think it does feel like it's different now, as dangerous as it is to say that. And I think Maybe, you know, in part, that reflects this increasing recognition that where we're going, if we have a real slowdown here, if this devolves, the current situation in the economy devolves, is not a good place. You know, we're going to do more QE. Maybe we get into MMT. You know, we're going to see a lot of these candidates in the next year get up and, and express some views that I think will be pretty scary to the to the markets. And I think that gold is sort of reflecting an increased possibility that that we see something in that direction. And that chart on page 14 is really, it's an interesting one just because it's been a, a real signal flare of issues in the past, be they domestic or, or foreign or 
you know, economic or financial. But uh, generally, when gold is outperforming copper, basically what you're doing is you're saying that the number one, let's say, metallic barometer of financial security versus the number one metallic barometer of economic security, Dr. Copper sort of being the, the preeminent indication of, of, of the global economy, when gold starts to outperform, it's been a sign that trouble is brewing. And so I've denoted all the, the financial crises that we've seen when we've been at these levels in the past. And maybe it's kind of a neat way to tie this all up by pointing out that the last time we were at these levels of gold outperforming copper was 2016 before you know the election turned everything around we were really clearly on the on the cusp of a recession back then and you know now we're we're every bit as high today so that's going to be interesting to watch but i i do think that gold is really starting to reflect not just what we're seeing here domestically but this idea that central banks maybe have now pushed to the point where you know they've essentially these unfunded liabilities of pensions, not just here in the U.S., but around the globe, are so extreme that the next phase of monetary policy, when we have the next downturn, whenever, you know, if it's coming now or next year or the year after, is going to be so enormous that it really could shake the foundation of, of fiat money. And finally, Stephanie, I noticed that your website, macromavens.com, got a facelift recently. What's going on there, and what can people expect to find when they get there? So, yes, I have undertaken a facelift on the uh, website, and now people will be able to see over the 17 years, I can't believe it's been that long that I've been at this, um, some of the, the major calls I've been making, which till recently have been accessible only to the institutional investment community. And I'm now allowing some high net worth individual investors to get to benefit from these insights. So I'm hoping that people will take a look and see what we're all about over here at Macro Mavens. And again, the website is macromavens.com. We didn't get to all of the charts in Stephanie's chart book, but I do highly recommend that you download the chart book. The charts are all very interesting. And again, you can follow up with Stephanie at macromavens.com. Patrick Ceresna and I will be back as Macro Voices continues right here at macrovoices.com. Macro Voices is a listener-driven program. Please email requests for specific future interview guests to requests at macrovoices.com. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com, and we'll answer them on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. We also welcome your suggestions for how we can improve the program. Now, back to your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna. Now, Eric, that was a great interview with Stephanie, but joining us now in the postgame is Rick Rule, who is the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings. How are you doing, Rick? Life is very good, thank you. Rick, 
as you know, we differentiate at Macro Voices by focusing on a more sophisticated audience. I think most of our audience has heard the basic gold interview with Rick Rule, which has been done so many times by so many other podcasts. I don't even want to go there. Let's talk about a hypothetical, sophisticated investor. Let's suppose we're talking about a family office with, for sake of round numbers, $100 million of assets under management. First question is, for what I think, and I'm guessing you'll agree with me, is a coming secular gold bull market over the next decade. Feels like it's more than just a 10% allocation, but what is the allocation for a large, sophisticated investor? And for someone who has the wherewithal, let's assume that our audience understands options, understands and is qualified to participate in accredited investor instruments such as private placements. How do you play this? If you were advising someone to lay out a strategy for that family office to participate in precious metals, could be gold, could be silver, could be other precious metals, how do you do it? What instruments do you use? What percentage of it is metal versus equities? How much of that is private equity versus public equity? Give us the whole rundown. Well, a lot of the answer depends on the nature of the family office and the family business. A family fortune, which is involved mostly in fixed income instruments like bonds over the longer term, needs to hedge against the possible ravages of inflation. So we begin there with an allocation to physical precious metals, insuring the rest of the portfolio. An investor whose business gives them the ability to fight back against inflation, a private business that can be price makers as opposed to price takers, would, of course, enjoy a different sort of asset spread. But we begin by saying, if you think that gold and silver are going to go up, start with owning physical gold and silver or gold and silver surrogates. Our preference, of course, being the Sprott physical gold or Sprott physical gold and silver products on the New York Stock Exchange. Moving on, I think it's important to note that if you look at a 40-year gold chart, I refer to the 40-year Barron's Gold Mining Stock Index, you will see that at least in a historic context, we are either approaching the bottom at the bottom or just off the bottom of a fairly dramatic bull market in gold equities. Your listeners who have been through it, of course, understand that. The importance of that is really threefold. The first is that people's timing is probably pretty good at the bottom, close to the bottom, just off the bottom. But the second thing to note is that recoveries from bear market bottoms are very dramatic in the gold space. They vary between about 200% on the low side to 1,200% on the high side. And these recoveries take place over fairly constrained periods of time, between two years and four and a half years, which means that what we're looking forward to, if past is prologue, is somewhere between a 200% gain and a 1,200% gain in the equities, which is fairly dramatic. The point of that is that early on in a gold bull market, you participate not in terms of trying to outperform the market itself, which performs well, but trying to obtain market performance with less risk. In other words, about 75% of your allocation to gold equities should be in extraordinarily high quality equities. Reduce your risk rather than attempting to maximize your gain. Mercifully, for a family office, as you describe, a $100 million account, having 75% of their equities exposure in the market still gives them a fairly substantial sum of money to attempt to 
outgain what is already an extremely attractive investment proposition. That is traditionally done for sophisticated investors via private placements. Private placement, for those who don't know, is the ability to buy equity directly from the company rather than in a secondary market transaction. And the advantage of doing that is really threefold. The first is that you can acquire a rather large position without having to worry too much about moving the market as a consequence of your position. The second is that your timing is usually good because a well-chosen private placement allows you to contribute capital to a company to answer an unanswered question. It might be with a series of drill holes, but the idea is almost always that the capital is employed in a fashion that, if successful, will generate a fairly immediate response in the value of the equity you bought. The third advantage of a private placement, at least a well-structured private placement, is, of course, warrants the right but not the obligation to buy more stock at a fixed price for a fixed period of time. That's important because if the answer to the unanswered question that you financed with the capital contribution comes back as yes, you have the ability to take advantage of that after it's been de-risked, which is really important. So in answer to your question, start with the bullion, move from the bullion to the highest quality gold and silver equities and move from there to private placements. I would also say one other thing, and I'll be talking about this at a conference that you and I will be attending later this year. Don't forget in constructing a sophisticated precious metals portfolio, looking at debt instruments. At Sprott, we have provided capital to, for mine construction for many years, but also in bridge and mezzanine finance. And when I look back at the last decade that we've had, the period of 2010 to now, the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture Index of sort of sub-billion market cap mining companies, nobody needs reminding of this, but the index fell by in excess of 80% over 10 years. At the same period of time, accounts at Sprott that were dedicated to lending, in particular the on-balance sheet lending activities of Sprott Inc., generated in excess of 15% compounded internal rates of return. So sophisticated investors of the type that you described, family offices or $100 million portfolios, should consider including debt instruments to a normal equity portfolio. And we'll be talking about that a lot this year. Okay. Can you give us, uh, obviously, the particulars of a client's circumstances have to dictate this, but at a high level, can you give us a breakdown between those four asset classes that you described, which is physical bullion, public equities, private equity through private placements, and debt instruments? What's the percentage allocation? Well, in a normal circumstance, in a normal market, I tell family offices, again, depending on individual circumstances, that they should be between sort of 10 and 15% invested in precious metals. For a variety of circumstances, the low valuations of the equity and my own concerns about things like the US dollar, sophisticated investors, I think, now can go up to sort of 20% involved in precious metals and precious metals equities. I believe in having lots of liquidity in accounts, meaning, as an example, lots of cash. And although gold and silver are volatile, I consider them to be bedrock currencies. So my own suspicion is that most accounts at present 
should be sort of 10% of the total account in bullion, particularly if other aspects of their portfolio are really bond-centric, in particular long bond-centric, where the account needs protection from the ravages of inflation. From there, I would suggest a portfolio that is, once we're past the bullion, into other investment instruments, I would suggest a portfolio that is at least 75% investment-oriented. This can be done either by buying the equities of the highest quality gold companies or creating a portfolio that is combining the equity of the highest quality precious metals mining company with debt instruments from other companies where your upside is perhaps less, but your downside is constrained because you are at the base of the capital stack ahead of all of the other participants. And from there, after you've taken care of bullion, after you've taken care of investing, so that you capture the bull market beta that you see in the gold equities, then you participate by trying to outperform the market. Now, it's worth noting, and I'll tell this joke on myself at this upcoming conference. The truth is that all of the money that I currently invest prudently, I made by speculation. So I'm not saying don't speculate. What I am saying is invest before you speculate. If you look at the chart that I mentioned, the, the Barron's 40-year chart, and any of your listeners who contact me, I'll send them a copy of the chart. If you look at this chart, one of the amazing things that comes out of it is the incredible performance of gold equities in these recoveries. As I said earlier in this interview, recoveries are commonly between 200%. That's the whole index, not the best stocks, and 1,200%. So for most of the money that you have invested in the sector, the idea is just catching market beta with as little risk as you can have in place. Of course, the historic gains occur with the money that you invest more and more aggressively. But I can't say enough, invest before you speculate. Okay, so to summarize, we're looking at about 10% of total net worth in physical bullion, gold and silver, bars, coins, whatever the, the denomination is. And then on top of that, another 7% or so of total net worth in a combination of public equities and debt instruments, and maybe another 3% in speculative private placement kind of things. Is that a fair summary of, of the allocation? Yeah, in a very general sense, that's absolutely right. Now, Rick, you're going to be covering this topic and so much more at the uh, Silver and Gold Summit with me coming up in uh, j just over a week. It's uh, on October 27th and 28th. Now, uh, you've got a, a number of panels that you're a part of, but you're also doing some uh, keynote presentation. What do you plan on talking about when you're out there at the show? Actually, surprisingly, a lot about what we just talked about, strategies for participating in a gold equities bull market. It has been so long since we've been in a bull market that many speculators and many investors forget the lessons that they should have learned in prior bull and bear markets. So interestingly, the topic that we talked about today will be the focus of what I'm talking about in San Francisco, the importance of capturing beta and how to capture alpha if you're after alpha. Right, right. Well, Rick, you know what? I look forward to uh, seeing you out there and uh, I'll see you in a week. It'll be a pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. Patrick, it's always great to have Rick. I'm sorry I won't be able to join you guys in San Francisco next week. I really want to get into your chart book and get a quick update from you on the equity market. But before we go there, I saw in the inbox this week, our friend, Dr. Steve, who's a longtime listener, sent us a question. What was Steve's question? 
Right. So uh, Steve reached out to us and he had a question about after listening to all of our interviews with so many of our guests. And it, was, it came up asking the question that the Fed hasn't been all that productive with monetary policy in terms of its impact on the real economy and not necessarily helping or maybe even making things worse. But at the same time, many of our guests are spending a fair amount of time saying the Fed is behind the curve and need to be more aggressive in extending the cycle. And so he's just trying to wrestle with this idea that one hand, we are saying the Fed should stop manipulating the markets. But on the other hand, we're saying that they should be spending more time kind of juicing up the market for, for another run. And he's asking, would that not make the problem even bigger down the road? And how do you struggle with this idea of whether the Fed should stop manipulating or whether they should actually be doing more? What's your take on that, Eric? I think it's a question of choosing your battles and, you know, the old saying of changing the things you can't accept, but at the same time, accepting the things that you can't change. I think a lot of our guests that are on the program would agree with me that the world would be a better place if the Fed were not trying to manage financial markets. But at the same time, we live in a world where they think that's their job. And if you live in a world where the Fed thinks it's their job to manage the economy and manage financial markets, you'd like to at least encourage them to do a good job of that if they insist on making it their business to do that. And I think that when our listeners, as Steve mentioned in his email, Julia Clerk and Julian Brigden saying, hey, you know, the Fed's behind the curve, needs to get to it. You know, why are Julian and Juliet saying the Fed needs to do more of what seems to be a bad idea. I think it's because they accept that we live in a world where the Fed thinks it's their job to manage the economy. And if they think that that's their job, they ought to at least pay attention to the indicators that Julian and Juliet are watching. And those indicators seem to suggest that they're behind the curve. So I think it's a question of choosing your battles, Patrick. But in any case, let's move on, speaking of choosing your battles, to choosing your chart book. Listeners, you'll find the download link for Patrick's post-game chart book in your research roundup email. If you're not yet registered, just go to our homepage at macrovoices.com. Look for the red button that says looking for the downloads on our homepage. Patrick, you've got the S&P 500 daily here, almost, just almost on page two, scraping back up to new all-time highs. What's going on here? Right. So uh, the chart book in itself is looking at actually global equities. The S&P here, I wanted to particularly just use as a reference because I find it fascinating. We're at this kind of end of business cycle kind of dynamic. And at the same time, we have a global manufacturing recession underway. And normally when I hear that kind of stuff, it would make me think that the charts should be very toppy and bearish. And yet when I look at these charts, it's amazing how resilient the bulls have been and in, in holding it up. So now when we take a look at that S&P 500, it's uh, been a, a week of some positive news on the global geopolitical front that is pushing the S&P back up to its highs. And this is a, a, such a fascinating crossroad on, uh, for the market because I think the big tell comes in literally right here because the bulls are given enough juice that they should theoretically break this market to a, a, an all-time new high and then all sorts of feedback loops will push the market and have it gain some momentum as, as many investors are going to be forced to chase these markets potentially higher. But 
if the market can't use this kind of short-term positive news to push to new highs, I think that then, then we have the risk that this becomes just another shoulder of a bigger topping formation and things could really get ugly toward the tail end of the year. And I'm not actually going to make the big bold call. I actually think that the next few weeks are going to be just crucial for determining what's in store for the market for the fourth quarter, and at least how the remainder of the fourth quarter plays out. Patrick, I'm particularly interested in your commentary on page three, because if I'm looking at that correctly, it looks like just today we've got a breakout to a new all-time high on the MSCI World Index. Now, that's very much at odds with the commentary we've heard from some of our guests that are saying, hey, the S&P is the, the last man standing. The rest of the global markets are already rolling over. What's going on here? Well, this is exactly it. You know, we're looking at all of this kind of bearish news and economic data coming in soft, even in the US, but yet you have the, the world index here about to break to fresh highs. And we see that in so many of the other major global market, developed markets, such as, let's say, the uh, Nikkei, which is broken to a 2019 high, at least breaking the, the, to a year high. Or even on page five, we have the Euro stock 50 breaking to a, a fresh new high for the year. And so it's really an interesting question is, is that are we witnessing another leg higher in spite of all of this bearish news? Because every bone in my body wants to be bearish, Eric. Just like you often say, it doesn't make a lot of sense to kind of keep bullying, but these charts uh, just continue to look like they want to go higher. And I, I just feel that it's going to be a really interesting moment to find out whether or not uh, this happens. You know, I, I really think these charts are telling a very important story. There's so many good reasons. And, and you listen to so many of the things that Stephanie said in today's interview. There's so many good reasons on a fundamental level to be bearish. But look at what the chart's telling you. I see... I see charts here that all want to break out aggressively higher and are waiting for an excuse to do so. And it's crazy to me in contrast to the way I interpret the fundamentals. But there's no way I want to short this market right now. I'm afraid it's about to break higher. I agree. The one thing, though, I'll say is that why I'm, I'm not ready to be outright super bullish, because this is actually a huge tell. All the technicals are pointing for this breakout. And under all circumstances, the bulls, if they show up here, should be able to make a legitimate push to the upside. But what if they don't show up? What if this breakout fizzles very quickly and uh, some sort of a variable is introduced to the market, some news event that basically makes it give it all back? That would actually make me very quick quickly want to flip-flop. But I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the Bulls. They, ha they have a, a possession of the ball here, and they have a chance to run with it. And I'm dying to find out whether they pull it off. On page six, though, I wanted to just put one chart, because we were focusing really on the developed markets. But even when you go to Brazil, where you have, in many cases, considered an emergent market, and you see here that the chart pattern looks very similar. It's right near its 52-week highs, just kind of rolling up, making higher lows sequentially right up to there. Will we see a breakout here? This is such an interesting moment in the market. Patrick, moving on to page seven, I'm wishing I could break out and uh, be with you as you're going to be hanging out in San Francisco with Brent Johnson and Rick Rule and Grant Williams. I, I think you're actually speaking on a panel with Grant Williams and Brent Johnson. Tell us about what you're going to be speaking with, but more importantly, for the benefit of our listeners who may want to join you guys in San Francisco, what's the scoop? How can they get signed up? 
Well, it's not just hanging out, me hanging out with them, but all of our listeners that uh, would like to come out can hang out with all of us. And we're going to be there for the two days on the 27th and 28th. And we're going to have all sorts of panel discussions and opportunities to, to meet so many of our listeners. It's, uh, it would be great. Uh, any of our Macro Voice listeners that can make it out, please do. There is, it's just important to know that if you are going to register, you can get 50% off of the ticket by using the promo code MACRO50, which is uh, the, the promo code for Macro Voice listeners. So make sure you take advantage of that if you register. I have my own little keynote thing that I'm doing talking about those commodity cycles that I've uh, done so many times before, but I'm also going to be on the big gold panel uh, moderated by Marin Katusa, and uh, it's going to be Brent Johnson, Cal Everett, and uh, Grant Williams on there with me. It's going to be a great time. Fantastic. And that's all happening next weekend, October 27th and 28th at the Hyatt in San Francisco. Finally, Patrick, moving on to page eight, we are still getting some inquiries about the ratio call spread and where people can find that video. Tell us about the 14-day free access pass for big picture trading. That's right. When Tian was on the other week, he uh, reintroduced the ratio call spreads out there. And I still think it's an amazing strategy at this stage in the market because that right tail risk, the way we were looking at those charts, it really does exist. Anyway, it's a great way of, of uh, putting on some trades just in case the market really does gain some juice to the upside. We have a boot camp video available at Big Picture Trading. Anyone can access it with a 14-day complimentary access. So you can just uh, visit bigpicturetrading.com and register for the free trial. We're going to have to leave it there in the interest of time. Today's episode of Macro Voices was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com. Be sure to check out my full-length interview with Niels Kastrup-Larsen, published back on September 7th, 2019, when we go in-depth on the subject of trend-following strategies. The link is in your research roundup email. For information on sponsoring Macro Voices, please visit MacroVoices.com forward slash sponsor info. And be sure to sign up for your free account at Macro Voices. That gets you access to our free weekly email blast, the Research Roundup. That contains links to all of the best free download content that we can find on the internet, including supporting materials for our feature interviews. Patrick, tell them what they can expect to find in this week's Research Roundup. This week, you're going to find the transcript for today's interview, as well as a link to the chart book that accompanies Stephanie's presentation, as well as uh, the chart book that we discussed here in the post game. There's also a, an interesting article asking if Facebook's uh, Libra is a threat to national sovereignty, and uh, also a link to a great article from oilprice.com about the complete history of the oil markets. So you'll find this and so much more in this week's research roundup. That does it for this week's episode. We appreciate all the feedback and support we get from our listeners and we're always looking for suggestions on how we can make the program even better now for those of our listeners that write or blog about the markets and would like to share that content with our listeners send us an email at researchroundup at macrovoices.com or tag it with the mvrr hashtag on twitter and we'll include it in our weekly distributions if you have not already follow our main twitter account at macrovoices for all the recent updates and releases you can also follow eric on twitter at Eric S. Townsend, and myself, at Patrick Ceresna. On behalf of Eric Townsend and myself, thank you for listening, and we'll see you all next week. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. 
Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com, the Internet's premier source of online education for traders. Please visit BigPictureTrading.com for more information. Please register your free account at MacroVoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the Internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at MacroVoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit MacroVoices.com.